see what we did right and what we did wrong. <laughs> Last week they told me I was supposed to be mic'd up. Whoever was supposed to do that was God. So I will try when I get away from this thing today to speak up so everybody can hear me. It's interesting this morning that both our Old Testament and New Testament lessons are stories about poor widow women. In our Old Testament story from 1 Kings, we have the story of Elijah going to the village of Zarephath. Elijah was the first of many great prophets that God sent to warn the children of Israel and Judah of the fate that would befall the nations because of their unfaithfulness. And we stopped to look at one of the reasons that the people had become unfaithful to God was because their kings and their priests had become unfaithful. It's, it's difficult to expect the common folk to be any better than those that lead them politically or religiously. That was true then, and it's still true today. It's, it's unavoidable to overlook the problems that the Roman church is facing today, along with many, if not most, of our mainline churches, including our own. And after this past week's election, it'll be interesting to see if our new batch of leaders will be any better than our old batch of leaders. God's people have, have become sinful. They've turned away from God, and in order to punish them, or actually, maybe God was simply attempting to get their attention. He told Elijah that there was going to be a great drought, and there was. And it was during this time that God told Elijah to go to the city of Zarephath and to stay there for a while. God not only told Elijah to go to the village, but he told him that when he got there that there'd be a widow woman who would look after him. And our lesson says that as soon as Elijah arrived in the village, that he encountered a woman who was out gathering sticks. And Elijah asked the woman if she would give him a drink of water. Now we need to understand the ancient custom of hospitality in that part of the world to truly understand what's happening here. It was a custom of the time to welcome a visitor in your town or village and to offer to take them in and to feed them. So Elijah entered into the village and asked the woman to give him a drink, and that wasn't all that unusual as it might sound to you and me. I don't know about you, but if someone were to drive down our street and stop out in front of the house and yell at me to go get him a drink, I'd probably say something like, Say what? <laughs> you talking to me? You talking to me? But you see, they had a different culture. That's the culture of the Near East. And even today, in that part of the world, hospitality is different than you and I will understand. If you share a meal with someone, they become a part of your lives. Well, Elijah begins by asking for a drink of water, and then he adds, well, while you're at it, could you bring me a loaf of bread? Believe it or not, the poor woman didn't get upset at his request, but rather she begins to apologize that she only had enough for one last loaf that she and her son had planned to share before they starved to death. And again, you and I can't understand or appreciate a way of life that is so affected by drought and by poverty that you might actually starve to death due to lack of food or provisions. But this was not uncommon in Old Testament times. And there's parts of the world, unfortunately, today where that's still happening. It still goes unnoticed by much of society. So as we approach this Thanksgiving time in a few days, we need to truly stop and thank God for the abundance that he's provided to each of us. And we need to be mindful and look to the needs of others. 
Elijah then tells the woman something that must have been hard to believe. He, he said, if you'll go ahead and make me that last loaf of bread, I'll guarantee you that your supply of meal and oil won't run out until the rains come. Now, our lesson tells us that she did what she was told. I don't know why she did that, but she did. And then apparently she fed Elijah and her son for many days after that. Now, I could stop right there and preach a sermon on faith. And this would be a great example of what can happen when we obey the plan that God has for each of our lives. But I digress. That's something I do too often, I'm afraid. <laughs> the story of the widow in Mark's gospel has some interesting similarities with the Old Testament story. We get the impression that this woman was down to her wit's ends when she comes to the temple. Jesus sees this event unfolding and he calls his disciples together in order to teach them another valuable lesson. He's been doing that for the past several weeks as he and his disciples have been making their final trek southward toward Jerusalem. This is a trip that began several weeks ago in Caesarea Philippi, north of the Sea of Galilee. And during this time, Jesus has taken several opportunities to teach a wide variety of lessons to his followers. And today is another one of those occasions. Jesus and his followers have finally arrived at the holy city, Jerusalem, and they're in the temple. They're there to worship. But it would appear that Jesus is also there to observe. Between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women is the, is the gate, what they call the gate beautiful. I don't know, it may be that, that Jesus had gone there for some peace and quiet after his recent argument with the religious leaders. But in the court of the women, there are 13 collection boxes called trumpets because that's, that's kind of what they're shaped like. Each collection box is for something different and each has a special purpose. We don't know which box the, the woman went to. I guess that's not really germane to our story. The first thing that Jesus saw were the scribes and the Pharisees entering and wearing their fine robes into the temple and speaking to all the people as they passed by. <clears throat> kind of get the impression that Elvis was in the house. <laughs> There's nothing in the world wrong with wearing your Sunday best to church. When I was a kid growing up, I always had a Sunday suit. That's, that's what it was. That's when I wore it. <clears throat> It was the best suit I had, and I took a great deal of pride in getting dressed on Sunday mornings for church. But that's not what was happening here. That's not what Jesus was offended by. It wasn't the clothing that the men wore. It was the fact that it was important to them that everybody noticed their clothing. And because of it, they were seen as being special and more important. Throughout the book of Mark and throughout much of your Sunday readings this past summer, You've heard and witnessed the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus witnessed a group of men who attempted to teach the people as though they had authority, although they knew they had no authority at all. <coughs> and everybody else, I think, knew it. It was Jesus who spoke with authority, and the people and the religious leaders recognized that. And the ancient New Testament church, they didn't, they didn't take up offering like we do today. They didn't pass a plate up and down each aisle. No, there were these alms boxes at the entrance of the church, and you placed your offering in the box when you entered the temple. The boxes were placed in such a position that most people could see them, and hence you could see what someone placed in them. Obvious from the lesson, Jesus and his disciples were in such a position to see what was taking place. 
And our lesson says that they sat and watched as the people were putting the money into the treasury. And it says that many rich people put large sums in. And you get the impression that they were making the most of their contribution by making sure that everybody saw how much they were giving. But somehow through the hustle and bustle of those comings and goings, Jesus noticed a poor widow woman who came and placed two small coins in the box. And Mark tells us that the two coins amounted to a penny. Jesus saw all this. He called his disciples together together around him and he said, I need to tell you something. He said, this poor woman has just put more into the offering than all these others who had so much more. Again, I could stop for a moment and acknowledge something about Jewish thinking of the times. Jewish people believed that wealth was a sign that God had blessed a person, and surely he had. But they carried this on to believe that a person's wealth was a sign that that person was somehow more special in God's eyes than those who did not possess great wealth. That's why it was so difficult for Jesus' disciples to understand Jesus' concern over the rich young ruler who was unwilling to sell all that he had and give his money to the poor. Remember that story? The scripture tells us that a rich young man came to Jesus and said, What must I do to be saved? This is another of the events that, that's recorded in three of the four Synoptic Gospels. So I believe that, that it was another one of those events that made a major impression on the disciples. The scripture says that a rich young man came to Jesus and asked what he was needed of him to ensure his salvation. And the combined description of all the Gospel writers lead us to believe that this was someone from a Jewish ruling class. Someone who would have possessed great wealth. And we're also led to believe that this young man was someone who had been raised well and who apparently had followed the religious teachings since his youth. But apparently the young man felt that there was something missing in his life. And for some reason he'd come to believe that this young rabbi Jesus might be able to offer him some assurance. Jesus quizzed the young man and cited six of the commandments along with that of loving your neighbors yourself. And the young man stated that he had always observed the laws and the teachings of the faith. And it would appear that as Jesus looked in the young man's eyes that he believed him. Remember the story. Jesus looked at the, the rich young man and said, there's only one thing more that you need to do. You need to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. What might you have done in that situation? <laughs> Scripture tells us that the young man turned and walked away. Because he had great riches. Now, there's a whole lot more that I could say this morning about stewardship and, and giving, but again, I digress. I'll save that for another day because I want to get back to our widow ladies in the temple and focus on this morning's lesson. Jesus had said that it would be very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, and his disciples were astonished at his words because they'd always been taught just the opposite. But this morning's lessons. They're not meant to spur a discussion about wealth and possessions. It's, it's meant to cause us to see our giving as being sacrificial. I'm not even going to the Old Testament teaching concerning the tithe this morning, although that wouldn't be inappropriate considering that the vestry is about to approve your annual budget for the coming year. Now what I want to see this morning is that the amount of the gift isn't as important as it is the cost to the giver. Someone said one time that, that we ought to give until it hurts. 
But I've kind of always felt like we ought to give until it feels good. If we're making a sacrifice to God, it should make us feel good. But the word sacrifice itself implies that we're giving up something in order to please God. That could be a good thing. In the earliest of times in the Old Testament, God had been pretty specific about what he expected from his people when it came to tithes and offerings. He, he was equally specific about how they were to worship, how they were to keep his commandments, remember? I, I grew up in a, in a home where the first check my folks wrote followed every payday was their offering to the church. Their offering didn't come from what was left over at the end of the month. It came right off the top. That was the way I was raised. In the Bible we read of the offering of the first fruits. The people knew that their offerings were to come from the best of their crops and the best of their herds. That's what God had called for. Why did God do that? God needs us to understand and acknowledge that everything that we have comes from Him. Oh, sure. You worked for it. You earned it. You saved it. But who gave you the ability to do those things in the first place? And our acknowledgement of that fact we're called to return a portion to God in thanksgiving. The widow and the temple, she might have kept one coin for herself. No one would have begrudged her that. The woman in the Old Testament might have offered to share her loaf of bread with Elijah. But apparently that wasn't the case either. It would seem that real giving has a certain recklessness to it. I think one of the tragedies that most of us face in our lives is is that too often there's a part of our lives that we want to hold back, a part of our activities, a part of who we are that we want to hang on to. But the widow women in this morning's lessons were willing to give all that they had. I find it interesting and yet lovely that Jesus would give all of history the example of generosity as a person who gave a gift of a penny. Who among us this morning can see our giving as a sacrifice to God and thanksgiving for all that he's done for us? Might you hear the, the story of these two women this morning and not feel a certain amount of shame when you look at your own offerings and help? The first thing that God requires of each of us is our love and our devotion. And if that's genuine, then being prepared to surrender all that we have to him and to his service will come naturally. If you're prepared to surrender yourself to God totally, then returning to God what he asked for will be easy. Marshall Steele, Marshall was the, was the pastor at Highland Park United Methodist Church for, for years. And I remember him speaking some time ago. And he said, through the years, I, I spent a lot of money paying bills and buying clothes and going out to eat and enjoying life. And today I really don't have much of anything to show for it. And he went on to say the clothes had all worn out. His cars all had to be replaced periodically. The, the good times had come and gone. But the money that he had given to further the mission of his church, helping those in need, reaching out in the community, those had offered a sense of satisfaction that had remained and it had brought him a certain measure of joy. I thought about those words in the past. And I've come to, to realize that lasting happiness doesn't come from amassing stuff. Oh, I, I watched the stock market and I've worked through the years to provide for Carol myself. But there's very few things that, that give us more joy than when we're able to support our church or to help someone in need. Carol's been helping her niece through college, paying her tuition. I've 
I've been seriously involved with food for the poor for some time now. And obviously we've supported the mission of the church through our tithes and offerings as long as I can remember because that's how we were raised. I truly believe that God blessed our two widow ladies. And I believe he has a blessing in store for the people at St. Dunstan's as well. The widow in the temple gave everything she had and in doing so she laid claim to everything that God had to offer. She became a part of something greater than herself, the kingdom of God. And as such, she walked away with something more than those who still had money in their pockets when they left the temple. The widow's might, M-I-T-E, became her might, M-I-G-H-T. As her devotion to God became her source of strength in her time of need. When we give, not out of our abundance, but out of our heart, God will bless us in ways far greater than anyone might imagine because we're storing up our treasure in heaven. <clears throat> no one can take that away. Think on these words in the days to come. Let us